you probably have the experience like I have where you come across a picture in a drawer or something like that and then all of a sudden you oh, I forgot about that part of my life and takes you back into that, to that what your life was like in that moment and what God was doing in that moment. I had an experience like that with the church. Andrew and I were standing on the stage at South Street Campus and he was casting vision to the people that might join him here at the North Aurora Campus in the future. And I, looked, I was listening to him and thinking, I was here not long ago with Pastor Sterling dreaming about our first campus and all of a sudden I just had this, just a reminder from God that this is his answer to prayer. This is what he, we dreamed about becoming, a family of neighborhood churches and it's happening. When I think about Chapel Street North Aurora, the thing that I'm most excited about is the potential for this church to really embody what it means to be a neighborhood church. This building sits dead center in the middle of a neighborhood. That there's a school across the street, there's a care home right around the corner. Even the neighbor's backyards back up to this church. And so when I think about the kind of relationships that we can have with the people who live quite literally on the doorstep of this building, it really excites me. As I'm passing through the neighborhood, I was seeing these signs of keep God close, everyone else should be six feet away. And it was very beautiful to me because it's a, it's a couple things. I'm thinking, if someone is that excited about their relationship with God and that excited about sharing that with the community and that excited about their church, that they want to put up a sign that's notifying the neighborhood of we are here, we're here for you. I just saw that that's a beautiful representation of what the church is meaning to those individuals who attend. The church is meant to be the faithful presence of God in a, in a location, in a community. God's people, long before the church was established, I mean, he says when they go into exile in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, seek the prosperity and pray for the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. And because they're there, they should be a blessing to that place. Well, that's what the church is. We're here, we're sent here. I've actually been really surprised by how quickly God is already getting at work in this community. I've had the chance to connect with the principal across the street at the school. Uh, she's connected us to her staff, and we had just an amazing opportunity to start getting to know them, to, to write encouraging notes and prayers to them for how we want to support them. And I've actually been humbled by how excited they are for us to, to come here as well. When construction's happening, you sort of get this picture that there's a lot more going on than just walls going up. There's uh, spiritual work being done. We see it in the neighborhood now. God is building something in more than just the building. When I think about the success of Chapel Street North Aurora, I think is number one that this would be a place of real community for Chapel Street families. That when they come through these doors, they feel that they are a part of Christ's family. That every face that comes in here feels known, they feel valued, they feel welcomed. And then secondly, and importantly as well, that the community feels that Chapel Street is a blessing. I always think about the phrase that's become common now at our church, that we want to be a church, not primarily for ourselves, but for our neighbors. I'm really looking forward to my neighborhood church, doing service and outreach in the community, and as residents of that same community, giving us the opportunity to build relationships with people who live within the neighborhood. As we continue to expand, as God gives us opportunity, and multiply into neighborhood churches, our opportunities to meet more needs, to, re to reach more people, to make a greater impact on those that are hurting, and to do more gospel work around the world grows as well. Seek the prosperity, pray for the welfare of the city to which I've sent you. For in its welfare, he says, you'll find your own. And that's what we wanna be, a blessing to the city, a blessing to the community. 
to this place. Well, clearly we filmed that a few weeks ago, and hopefully we don't have that coming back anytime soon. Uh, but if you still were here last week or you've been tracking along online, you've seen that video before, and you know that we, we really do want to become a family of neighborhood churches. In fact, we are already a family of neighborhood churches. And the North Aurora campus uh, is something we're very excited about. Pastor Andrew is already underway, uh, recruiting a team uh, to go with him as the core and launch team. And the construction's already happening, as you saw there. Uh, in fact, if you ever want to drive by Banbury Road, uh, across from Schneider Elementary School, and just see what God is doing there, say a little prayer for that community, for that church, we intend to launch that campus for public worship this coming fall. And uh, you may have also heard about another very exciting opportunity. The funding for that building was up to $2 million, was we approved last summer at our annual meeting. There's $1.1 million left on that project, and because people have already been generous giving toward it. A couple of weeks ago, a generous anonymous donor in our church family uh, offered to match up to 50% of what's left on that project. So that means as a church family, if we can give 550000 then he will match the other 550000 which is just a remarkable act of generosity and God's provision. So I'm just encouraging you, whether you never attend there or not, uh, at all or not, would you prayerfully consider what you might give above and beyond your regular giving to help make that possible, that we could launch that campus completely debt-free this fall. In fact, this campus was a plant, right? You see the 1962 plaque out there, the 1984 plaque, the 1994 plaque, uh, 2004 plaque out at South Street, and our Mill Creek campus three and a half years ago. If we had not been reproducing ourselves in neighborhood churches, then the many things that we celebrate, for example, Shepherd's Heart right below here, we would not have the capacity to do these things if God was not growing us as a family of neighborhood churches. So would you consider prayerfully what you might contribute uh, if you call this your home? And if you're here as a guest or visitor, we don't want you to feel any obligation to give. We're just glad that you're with us. And now, uh, before we jump into the sermon uh, and go to prayer, I just want to make a comment about... It feels like every week, uh, or at least every other week during this COVID season, there's something to be deeply grieved over, concerned about, pray for in our culture and our world. And of course, very recently uh, in Atlanta, there were another, yet another mass shooting. Lots of conversation and opinions swirling about what motivated that. Was it a hate crime? Was it racially motivated? Was it an act of misogyny? Was it the fault of the church not discipling this individual well? Here's my answer to that. I don't know. I don't know, but I do know that we need to go to the Lord in prayer. We do know, I do know that we can come before him and pray for the healing of our nation and of our world. Will you join me in doing that before we come into the sermon? Father, our hearts uh, break once again as we learn about more tragic loss of life, each individual made in your image. The violence we see in Atlanta, in Chicago, in Washington, D.C., in Minneapolis, Charlotte, Seattle, Portland, in Libya, in Kenya, in Baghdad, and all over the world. Places we too quickly forget about and places we never even notice is just more evidence that our world is broken by sin and in desperate need of your grace. In your infinite compassion, receive our tears, our prayers, our anger, our frustration at the cycle of violence. Comfort us with your great strength and peace. Comfort those who are grieving with the loss of loved ones. Help us to know what to do in our own lives, in our communities, in our nation, in our world. 
Lord, help us, as you've commanded us, to mourn with those who mourn and to grieve with those who grieve. Give us the courage of your Holy Spirit to confront what we need to confront, confess what we need to confess, and to change what it is we need to change. And Lord, help us to turn our prayers into action that's rooted in the power of your gospel, that we may be reminded of the hope we have in you, Jesus. And so we may join you in the healing of the world. And now, Lord, we long to hear from you and from your word. There are so many other voices and messages bombarding us all day long. We ask that you would tune our hearts and our minds into what you have to say to us through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been tracking along, you know that we're in a series on the, first, the letter called First Peter. Peter wrote two letters to a group of churches in Asia Minor, in modern-day Turkey, uh, to people living in uh, what he called them exiles, elect exiles, meaning they've been dispersed around the Roman world. They're living far from Jerusalem, the epicenter of the beginning of the Christian faith. They feel like they're on the outside, and it's also they're e- either in the midst of or the very beginning stages of very intense persecution. To put it simply, to be a Christian in that time, it felt like there was intense pressure every day just to walk with Jesus. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And we uh, are looking at this ancient letter that Peter wrote to the churches and asking, what does it mean for us? And you remember the, the very first week, Pastor Brian issued you, as we did across all of our campuses, the memory verse challenge, right? First Peter 1, verse 3. So I've got a microphone. Who's ready? Anybody? Why does everyone laugh when I say that? <laughs> no, right? First Peter 1, verse 3. Let's say it together. If you know it, say it with, uh, from memory. If not, you can read it with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Commit that to memory. Write it down on a card. Stick it on your rearview mirror, on your bathroom mirror. Say it to yourself over and over again. When you see Chapel Streeters out in the community, ask them if they know the verse. Because that verse contains the anchor truth for the whole letter and for everything we're going to be studying as we go through this letter. Born again into a living hope. We're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 4 through 10. And you can follow along in your own Bible or on the big screen. I will read from my too small of a print Bible. Verses 4 through 10. Pastor Brian and I were remarking that we need to get the same size Bible with just more larger words. Chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious... You, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
The focus of this letter here in chapter 2 shifts a bit from the beginning part of the letter, what God has done in us individually. Not exclusively individually, but you have been born again into a living hope. And he's called you to live lives that are holy. Not perfect, not super spiritual, not holier than thou, but distinct, separate, set apart, reflecting the character of the Holy One who called you. So that's about what God is doing in you. Here Peter shifts to what's happening in us. What is God doing in this thing we call the church? What's, what's the purpose of it? What's his plan? What happens to us as we gather together? Notice he says in verse 4, as you come to him. That's what God is doing as the church gathers, as we come together. And there's something unique about this, special about this. And God is building something. It's a, it's a building project of God in the earth. Do you know people who love projects? Not just yet. That's okay. You can write that down. We'll get to that point later. Do you know people who love projects? I, I don't like projects. I mean, I have projects, and they take me tw- ten times as long. as. If you want something built crooked and way longer than it should, I'm your man. Call me. But I often think I can do something myself, and I have ten more trips to the hardware store. It costs way more money, and I have to call somebody who, to fix the mistakes that I've made. But my dad always had projects going. He, was like, he enjoyed that. He always would come over to our house, our first little house that my wife and I bought, our little two-bedroom ranch, and would just see things that needed to be done. Let's, let's do this together. I'm like, ah, I think it's fine, you know, so he always needed a project. I've got friends who are like this, the eternal projects. They're always doing something, uh, and I'm just not that way. But God has a project, a building project in the earth. I read recently about the, uh, the Winchester Mystery House. Anybody ever heard of this? It's in San Jose, Cal- anybody been there? In San Jose, California? Uh, so it's uh, Sarah Lockwood Party Winchester, the heir, heiress to the Winchester Arms Fortune, in, in the late 1880s, in, uh, inherited $25 million, in, which today, I don't know what the equivalent would be. That's a massive amount of money at any time. And she was a little bit, well, not a little bit. She was significantly off mentally, had been convinced by a medium that if she, if she was always building, she would never die. And she also felt that she needed to build rooms in her, her estate for the ghosts of those who had been killed by her husband's uh, weapons. Anyway, she started in, uh, in 1893... Uh, a building project that covered, uh, lasted for 38 years until her death. It never ended. Uh, a home, I think we have an image of it here, do we? Maybe not. Anyway. It, uh, it, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's just a small, that's just a, that's just a small portion of it. It covers six acres. Uh, it has 25,000 square feet, 2,000 doors, 10,000 windows, six kitchens, 48 staircases, more than a dozen of them leading to nowhere. Um, 47 fireplaces, and the list goes on and on. It doesn't make any sense. It's not like a planned out schematic. It's just this crazy, and today it's in the middle of a neighborhood. I think at the time it was this eight-room farmhouse when she bought it. This, build, this eternal, never-ending building project. Well, unlike Sarah Winchester, who built this eternal project with no plan, God has a project that he's still working on, and he has been ever since the beginning of the church. God's building project, we just saw, his program on the earth is his church. And that means you and I. We're part of this. We're part of God's building program in the earth. We are what God is building. I want you to stop for a moment and think about the significance of that statement. God's building program on the earth is his church. So the question is not, am I going to go to church this morning? Or am I going to tune in and watch online this morning? Which some of us do. That's not the question. That's the question we ask as church consumers in America. But the question really is, am I part of what God is building in the earth? Are you part 
of what God is doing, his project. The center of what God is doing in the world is the local church. There's a lot of criticism about the church and its failures, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to defend the, all the history of the church. We're flawed people. We get things wrong. But the New Testament is crystal clear. God's plan to make his gospel known, to, let, to see people's lives put back together, to glorify his son and his name in the world is the local church. That's the question we're asking. Where is the presence of God in Geneva, in Batavia, in Elburn, in North Aurora, in St. Charles, in Sugar Grove, in Winfield, and wherever you live? Where's the presence of God? Certainly God is known in creation. God is revealed in his word. But where, where, do, where do you look to find the presence, the manifest presence of God? The New Testament tells us his people, his gathered people, the church. Three things at the, at the heart of this building project. First, the basis of it that Peter lays out for us. The basis. Peter draws on Old Testament passages that involve images or metaphors of stones a number of times. Uh, and remember, Peter's name, by the way, what does anybody know what Peter's name means? Jesus, his name was Simon. Jesus changed his name to Petros. Peter, you are rock. Small stone, Petros. Pebble, rock, stone, rocky maybe. Maybe that was what it sounded like in the first century. So Peter, the rock, the stone, is saying to people living as part of the church, what Jesus said of me stone, it can also be true of you if you have the right basis, the right foundation. Listen again to how Peter describes Jesus in, verses, in verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. As you come to him, the living stone. He is the foundation and the basis of everything God is doing. Jesus, the living stone. Talk about Jesus, the living stone for a minute. Peter's not saying uh, something about Jesus that Jesus wasn't also saying about himself repeatedly. This is how Jesus describes himself. In fact, the Old Testament uses the imagery of stones for God's kingdom, for God's power, for God's word advancing over and over again. And Jesus takes those imageries and, and set those images and says they apply to him. Just a couple of them from the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Says this. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And then in Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter quotes both of these verses, but Jesus takes these verses and says, and many of them like, many other places like this, and says, these all apply to me. This first century rabbi has the audacity to come on the scene and say, all that imagery about the stones, in fact, in Daniel chapter 2, when Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and the stone at the end who's going to smash the kingdoms of the earth, means the kingdom of God, Jesus says, that's actually me. I'm that stone. So let's look at Luke chapter 20. This is the, how Jesus applies or interprets his, the parable he's just told, the parable of the tenants, which he's telling to confront the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. Luke chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like that because he knew that he was talking about them. This is what Jesus is saying. He comes along and says, all that imagery is about me. And Peter says, he's the foundation. He's the basis on which you build your life and he builds his church. He's the rejected stone. He's the living stone. And Jesus, the cornerstone, which is the primary metaphor here. He's the cornerstone. Once more, verses two, uh, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Cornerstones today, I mentioned, are, are usually decorative things. There, uh, there some, we have some here at our campus, at our, at our uh, South Street campus here, at our Kessler campus, and at our Mill Creek campus. Little insets that are stone plaques set into the wall or the foundation that, that commemorate when the building was built. But that's, those are just the decorative things. They're not foundational things because we pour uh, concrete with reinforced steel and a dug foundation. That's not how they built in the ancient world. In the ancient world, a cornerstone was the first, largest, and most important stone laid in any building project. Everything um, connected back to that. Some of your Bible translations might actually say capstone. Anybody have a, a, a King James or a New American Standard that says capstone in one of those verses? The, the, it's interesting, the same word lithos and then a different uh, acronius or gonius, meaning cornerstone or capstone. The capstone was the top of the arch, the arch held together in that, or the cornerstone Lethos Gonias, the, the base foundation. Jesus is what holds it all together and what it's all built on is the point. Peter's using both terms interchangeably here. When, when we had the chance, Pastor Brian and I and our wives, uh, Lorene and my wife Erin, had the chance to uh, travel to Israel. So many sites that were hard to keep all straight. But one of the m- most exciting times was to go beneath the level of, the, the, beneath the city and actually underneath the Temple Mount and see uh, what they call the Ashlar or Herodian stones. The stones that are still there that Herod built the Temple Mount on, that the Romans in 70 AD couldn't throw down. They are uh, massive. You'll see an image here of the Western Wall, uh, what you're probably familiar with. You see, uh, this is a picture that I took when we were there. But the Orthodox Jews there at the uh, Western Wall of the, we call the Wailing Wall, the Temple Mount. The temple's long gone, but the mount, the complex is still there. And the very base where they're standing, you can see the top edge of some stones known as the Ashlar or Herodian stones. They're cut uniquely, and so you can tell them apart. The stones that you see are from more recent, well, not recent, but they, the further up you go in archaeology, the newer they get. When you go beneath the city, you see a picture here that I took when we were down there. This uh, is one, that, that's a seam there. The, in, the inset uh, carving uh, is the, how you know the Ashlar or Herodian stones from the time of Herod. That's one long stone above and below. Uh, and the, let me just give you a little, little statistical ev- uh, insight to how big these things are. The one you're looking at, 35 feet long, 8 feet wide, 5 feet tall, weighing estimated 75 to 80 tons. But it's not the largest. The master course cornerstones, which are below where we're standing, this is, now we're, I don't know, what would you guess, 10, 12 feet, 20 feet below the level of what you saw, those, those Orthodox Jews there, below s- street level. You go below that, you find the master course stones. There's one stone there, 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 10 feet tall, that weighs an estimated 400 to 500 tons. 
It's, it's, how do they move them? How do they cut them? And the seams are, you, could, you can't slide paper between them. And they're still there. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Romans were unable to move those stones. They tore them all down except for those. And they said, ah, uh, that's good enough. Leave those. The, the Roman legions couldn't move them. Now, when Peter writes this letter, the temple's still standing. He's writing between 63 and 64 AD. So six to seven years, there'll be no temple anymore. He's looking forward. He sees, in effect, that this is about more than the physical stones, even though the temple is still standing. In Mark 13, verses 1 through 2, Jesus says this. He says, As he came out of the temple, his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and wonderful buildings. I had the same exclamation when I was there. Amazing. Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. And he's prophesying about 70 AD when the Roman legions would come and tear it down. Temple's gone, but God's building project is still going on. He's still building his church. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. No one can build, lay any foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ, Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. He is the basis, the cornerstone. And that's worth us talking now about the building. Peter says, as you come to him, it's a present imperative, daily approaching him. Not once upon a time I came to Jesus, and now I'm kind of doing my own thing. As you come to him. And he's, it's a, the you is plural. It's really as y'all come to him. That's what Peter's saying. He didn't know that Peter was from Georgia. He's not. He's saying, as you all come, as, as you all come to him collectively as a body, as a people of God, the, the, the living stone, look at what he says in verse 5. Something happens. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, in coming to Jesus, something happens to us collectively. We become living stones. Anybody ever heard of the pet rock? <laughs> in 1975, somebody had the genius idea. You put Google eyes on a rock, stick it in a box, you could sell that and make a lot of money. And someone did, because Americans are dumb, and we buy rocks as pets. It was marketed as, uh, you never have to uh, clean up after it, you never have to feed it, it's great at playing dead. <laughs> we use phrases like dead as stone or stone dead. But Peter says, actually, something miraculous happens as you dead stones come to him, the living stone. You become alive. There's a spiritual life in you as his people that he produces as you come to him. He's the source of life. He brings dead things to life. As we, the church, come to him, Christ, God is building something in us. What happens? What does God do when God's people come together? Well, again, where is the presence of God in the world? Where do you find God? Where is he? Peter tells us, in his church, in us. Do you think about that? Have you ever heard somebody ask the question, where is God when this atrocity happens? Where is God in the midst of a pandemic? Where is God in... We've all heard questions like that. We've asked questions like that, haven't we? Peter's answer is, in my people, in the church. That's where I dwell. That's where I reside. God dwells in us by his spirit, and God is joining us together to be worshiping, serving, believing, praying, praising communities where the presence of God is known, manifested, seen. 
This, by the way, if you're wondering, if you're, that's why the neighborhood church vision matters so much to us. That's why it matters. Reproducing ourselves in communities of faith, in new neighborhoods, in new cities, and new opportunities. For the presence of God to be manifest there. People gathered, serving, worshiping, praying, praising, thanking, giving. For the people of North Aurora and of Mill Creek and all around, where God gives us opportunity, might see, oh, there's where God is. That's where he, what he's like. That's what he's up to. As we come to Jesus, the living stone, we become living stones that are joined together in him. As we come to Jesus, the living stone, we become living stones that are joined together in him. I can't imagine a greater calling to be part of than that, through which the presence of God is known. Do you notice Peter calls us a holy priesthood? Do you catch that? In verse 5, you yourselves are, being, are like living stones being built together to a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Do you think of yourself as a priest or a priestess? Anybody? I'm guessing you're thinking, ah, it doesn't apply to me. Peter says, as we come to him, we are a holy priesthood. When I was first starting out in ministry, if you knew me in high school, uh, it was not predictable, except in God's mind, that I'd be doing what I'm doing today. And a guy that I went to high school with had heard that his buddy Jeff, me, was, uh, was, a, was in, working in the church, and he couldn't believe it. So he showed up to the church that I was working in, a different church many years ago. And I'm preaching, speaking to a group of about 1,100 high school students, and I can see in the back a guy that looks like my friend Mike. Uh, Mike Carparelli. <laughs> and I'm like, that looks like Mike. It can't be. Why would he be here? He waited till the whole service was over, came up to me afterwards, and says, uh, I heard that you were like a, a priest now. I'm like, well, no, not exactly, Mike, because his only context was Roman Catholic. He said, so what, what do I have to call you, like Father Jeff now? I said, no, no, I'm just Jeff. He had no context for that. What does Peter mean when he says that we are a holy priesthood? In the Old Testament, priests were a very specific class. You had to be a male descendant of the line of Aaron. Access to God was, res- was restricted to a specific place, the temple, a, sp- a specific system, the sacrificial system, and a specific people, priests. It was really, worship was really a spectator sport to a degree. I mean, you brought your sacrifice, but you trusted the priests uh, to, to offer it for you. you. They need to do the work for you. And you were, you know, kind of at their, at their mercy, trusting them to do that for you. In the Old Testament, worship and sacrifice was largely something you observed. You were a spectator. But in Christ, God is, he's bringing spectators to become participants. Worship is not a spectator sport in Christ. We come to him. As we come to him, we are not just there to watch what others are doing. If you're newer to the church, church is not something you observe. It's not supposed to be anyway. We're conditioned to think that way, though, that it's something I I, I take in, I observe, I receive, and I might get some inspiration from it and go about my week. But that's not the New Testament conception of what the church is. We are participants. A priesthood, meaning, well, what are the sacrifices we offer? How does that work? I mean, Jesus died once for all. His body's the perfect sacrifice. We don't offer animal sacrifices anymore. The temple isn't even around anymore. The New Testament says we actually do have a work of offering sacrifices. Romans 12, verse 1. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship. Hebrews 13, 15 tells us that we offer God a sacrifice of praise. Praise is a sacrifice. How is praise a sacrifice? Well, do you always feel like praising God? Do you always feel like telling God how great he is? He is great. 
Sometimes if I'm honest, I don't feel like saying that. I don't feel like acknowledging his sovereignty. I don't feel like giving him praise. But as I do it, something happens to me. It's a sacrifice to acknowledge his greatness and his goodness. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do good to all and serve as you have opportunity. For this, such sacrifices are pleasing to God our, our Father. Service. And then in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul says to the Philippian church, your gifts, your financial contributions are a sacrifice that's a fragrant aroma to God. So Peter says, you now are a holy priesthood. You're offering the sacrifice of your lives, your praise, your good works, your financial contributions, your prayers. That's all a sacrifice to God that he blesses. You find yourself actually wanting to be part of it. Years ago, I was talking to a man who was, he, he, it was a very typical story. His kids were involved, and his wife was coming to women's things, and uh, he, was kind of, he came grudgingly to find out what this thing his family was into uh, at our church. And we met one time for coffee because he'd been coming around, and I wanted to get to know him. This is several years ago, and he, he said, well, I like what your church is doing. You know, I, I, tell me more about your church. It was all your church, that church. And I kept saying, it's not mine. But he referred to it, he kept himself at a distance, even with the way he referred to it. Then after about five years, he talked about it as our church. Then he talked about it as his. Then he began to talk about it as God's. And I watched over, over the course of a decade as this man went from like, eh, 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 keeping this at a distance to like he wanted to be part of it. He wanted to be involved. He considered it like his, his joy and passion to contribute to what God is building in the world. That's what it means to move from a spectator to a participant. Look what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 21. If I can find it. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together, this is verse 22, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That phrase, in him, is crucial. You're being built together in him. That's a uniquely Christian phrase. Have you ever heard anybody use the phrase, in Muhammad, in Buddha, in Confucius? No. Christians talk about being in Christ. It's something very unique. In him, our life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, Paul says, that we are to use the words of, of Paul in Ephesians, in him something is happening to us. His life becomes our life as we come to him. He sets the angles. He's the cornerstone. The cornerstone, as you know, was the fixed reference point for the building. Everything tied back into it. If its angles were off, the whole building was off. It's, the foundations were off. So think about that in your own life. Is Jesus the fixed reference point for your life? Does everything tie back into who he is and what he's said? Notice that three times Peter says that Jesus is rejected by men. Verse 7, the builders rejected him. They looked at him and decided he's not fit to build their lives upon. In verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, he's called. I think people today are often trying to fit Jesus into their lives, the life they are constructing themselves under their ideas of what the good life is. And Jesus, as they conceive of him, might be another stone, maybe even a large one, 
They fit into the building they're trying to construct. It's not going to work. It's going to crumble. He's either the cornerstone on which you build everything, or he's the stone over which you trip and fall, or that falls on you. It's one or the other. He's not a stone that you fit into your construction. People stumble over Jesus then and now. They stumble over his teachings. They stumble over his call on their life. They stumble over his authority and lordship. They stumble over his rightful claim to have authority over every aspect of your life. We, we like some parts of his teachings, don't we? Grace, mercy, forgiveness, that seems good to me. I like that, Jesus. Sexual ethic, that's between one man and one woman in the covenant relationship of marriage for a lifetime, that seems outdated. And, and you need to get with the times, Jesus. I stumble over that. The loving your neighbor? Yeah, I like that, Jesus. Giving sacrificially? I'm not so sure that I'm with that, Jesus. Don't kid yourself. It's not just those outside the church that, st- that stumble over Jesus' teachings. We stumble too. That's what Peter says. The builders, the religious leaders, the, those who are supposed to be building what God's doing, they, they stumble over him. They reject him. They look at Jesus and they think he's not worth building on. Imagine the hubris of that thought. And it happens still today. Jesus Christ is either the cornerstone on which your whole life rests, or he's the stone that will be your undoing. The builders of this world then and now are still rejecting him. They do not see or recognize the power and glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. But, Peter says, you're to be different. It's to be different with you. This brings us to the beauty. The basis, the building, and the beauty. Good, good alliteration, three points. We're the community built on and held together by him. Verse 4, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, Peter says, chosen and precious. To those who believe in him, he says, you won't be put to shame. Those born again to a living hope, those called to live holy lives, we will not be put to shame. Let me read verses 9 and 10, how Peter wraps this up. But you are... A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a a statement those two verses are. What a beautiful passage. Job 1 of the church is not to provide programs that that meet your needs. Job one of the church is not to provide services that meet the needs of our neighbors. Those things matter, and we do those things. Job one of the church is not to provide services that you enjoy. Do you know what job one of the church is? I know you're not going to answer, because you're facing forward and sitting in rows when you have masks on, but in general. What's job one of the church? To bring glory to God. That's... God's building project in the earth is his church. And the job one of the church is to bring glory to the name of God. Peter says, you were were not a people before, but now you're a chosen race. Did you catch that? Chosen race? There's so much anger, vitriol, confusion, and angst in our culture today about people's identity. Looking in all kinds of places, trying to find it in this, uh, this 
cross-section of subgroups, racial, sexual, gender, otherwise. And Peter says, you're a chosen race. But they're not all from the same ethnic background. Some are Jews. Some are Gentiles. He's not saying God wipes away your diversity. God glories in our diversity. But what he does is he brings you together. And now the unifying thing is that you've been chosen by God. That you're built on him. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A pe- I love this phrase, a people for his own possession. In a world that dismisses and trashes Jesus, God calls communities of people that love him and have been born again into a living hope to bring him glory, to make his name known. Jesus is not what many people are looking for or what they would choose. At least they don't think so. They stumble over him, but he's what every one of us needs. God has chosen him, and he's chosen and called us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous and glorious light. This is the motivating passion of all that we do as a church. Ephesians chapter 3. Some of you will know this verse, verse 20, which we always quote. Some of you could probably quote Ephesians 3.20 from, from memory. Right? For God is able to do immeasurably or abundantly more than we could ask or imagine, ask or think. Anybody ever heard that verse before? Quoted it before? And we think it means to like, well, I can imagine quite a lot, God. You can do more for me than I could imagine? Well, I can imagine a big house. I can imagine a larger paycheck. I can imagine a 401. I can imagine all kinds of good things. Listen to what the context in which Peter says this. Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In the church and in Christ Jesus are not two separate things. It's one thing. In the church and in Christ Jesus that goes together. What, P, what, what Paul is saying here, what Peter is saying as well, is that God, what God is doing that's far beyond what you could ever think is in the church and in Christ Jesus. In his building project in the world, he is doing more than you can possibly imagine. It's so much more than just showing up every other week. This is why it's been so difficult for many of us during COVID to be restricted, to wrestle with this, these different sensibilities and, 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 and feel like we can't gather and we long to and we're anxious to and we're moving toward that regathering and opening up even more. Because it's, it's so much more than attendance and programs. God is doing more than we can ever ask or imagine or think in his church and in Christ Jesus. What else do you want to be part of in the world? What better, what better investment could you make with your life than to be part of what God is building in the earth? He says to Peter, you remember this, you know when Peter got his name, the rock? It's when Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? And the, Peter's like, well, some say Elijah, some say uh, John the Baptist, but they don't, some say a prophet. They're not sure. There's a lot of buzz. What about you? Who do you say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for that was revealed to you by my Father in heaven, not by man. And I tell you, you are Peter. The rock. And on this rock, I'll build my church. Not Peter himself. Peter's saying that. But on the rock of his confession in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Who has the gates 
in that little analogy? It's not a trick question. The gates of? So you can say it out loud. Hell! We think of the church as the gated community, don't we? We're the gated community, keep all the bad people out, hang a holy huddle, close up. That's not the New Testament vision. Jesus says the church is to be kicking down the gates of hell. They will not prevail. Hell has gates. And what he means by that, the forces of evil and darkness and oppression and sin in the world, the church is to be advancing against them. God is able to do far more than we can ask or imagine or think in the church and in Christ Jesus. That's his building project in the world. That's what we're a part of. It's, it's far beyond what I can imagine or think. Even our limited little vision here at Chapel Street, we're just a tiny glimpse of what God is doing in the world. But I'm so glad to be part of it. What better investment of our lives than to be called by Jesus, a people for his own possession, what he's building in the world. Will you pray with me? Father God, we pause now and acknowledge that we have very small minds. We are so myopic and selfish in our thinking. We think of the church, your body, as, as what's, what you're doing for us, what we receive, what we get. But when we see it right, Lord Jesus, it's about what we give, our whole selves to you. And as we come to you, the living stone, we too, like living stones, are built together into a temple in which you dwell by your spirit, which will never end, which is eternal. We say with our whole hearts, like the Apostle Paul, that there would be glory in us, the church, and in you, Lord Jesus, now and forever. We thank you that you have called us a people for your own possession, a holy race and nation chosen. And you, Lord Jesus, are our cornerstone, chosen and precious. We pray this in your name. Amen.